Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see what it is. How are you guys doing this morning? Good. Hold on one second. Let me get my uh, handy device going here. So uh, today we are going to end this small mini-series in um, the book of Colossians. And if you uh, remember correctly, this has been three sermons, but I want you to know there is way more sermons to go in this particular book. But we have just went verse by verse through um, the first chapter so far. And today we find ourselves in Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 29. Now to recap a little bit, uh, I switched around the weeks because given the announcement, wanted to be uh, considerate uh, of that. But the first uh, verses, verses 1 through 14, is supreme thanks. And we saw how that ministry is not done alone. Not only is ministry not done alone, it is also for us to be able to give thanks to God. And as Paul the Apostle was in jail writing this letter to the church at Colossae to be encouraged in the truth of the gospel and ultimately reminding them to be thankful. As Paul, as a pastor, I want you guys to continue to read through the book of Colossians, even though we're stopping today, that their hearts were encouraged because of the pastoral heart of Paul. And the next one, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, we looked at cream. It was the title of that sermon. Christ rules everything around me. We looked at Jesus as the king over all of the cosmos. But not just a king over all the cosmos. Not just a sovereign king, but a good king. Amen? Because it's not just good to have a position of authority if your character is trash. But we don't have a God whose character is trash. We have a God who is not only in the position of power and authority, but also his character is good. And then today we finish with the sermon title called Supreme Commission. Supreme Commission. Again, Colossians chapter 1 verses 24 through 29. This is what the word of the Lord says. Now I rejoice in my sufferings, for you and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body, that is, the church. I have become its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for another opportunity to come before you and learn from you, to learn from your word, to be encouraged uh, by your spirit, to be uh, partakers of your grace, to be uh, understanders and students 
of your will and of your way. God, we ask that you would send your spirit and that you would be the God of all wisdom as we seek to mine the truths of your gospel. Lord, may you allow your word today as we conclude Colossians to be powerful in the hearts of all the listeners as well as me as I communicate. God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your strength. We thank you for your power. We thank you for your sovereign lordship over all things. We ask that you would be with us during this time and let the spirit of wisdom guard our hearts and mind. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So Paul, again, remember he is in jail. Paul is in jail, chained. But don't worry, he is chained, but the gospel is not chained. As a reminder, as you remember, we, during the COVID uh, virus, that everyone was having to be inside their house. Couldn't go outside. It was hard to do certain things when you're supposed to stay in. You know, but remember that God and his word and his grace and his spirit continues through his gospel to go forward. It has gone forward in throughout history, and it continues to be going forward, even though we may be fixed in one particular place and location and a particular time. We are encouraged to remember through the Apostle Paul that though he is in chains, the gospel is not in chains. That though there may be worry or some fear about whether or not he will be executed or killed, he is still remembering that the gospel of Jesus as the Messiah is going forward. That not just the Messiah of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah is going forward, but that God in his faithfulness, in his covenant-keeping promises, has fulfilled all things in Jesus. So what would you do if you were uh, locked up? This is what Paul says. Right now, I am having a celebration. (laughs) Or in your translation, it could say rejoice. He says, I'm having a celebration, a celebration of my sufferings. Now, why in the world and what kind of person celebrates in their suffering? They might be like, hey, this dude might be a little bit twisted. Well, we know Paul is a little bit, uh, he's a little bit special anyway. Remember, he, he is, he's the Pharisee of Pharisees. He, he went to the, to the Yale, the Harvard, the, the, the Stanford of Torah school. And he's about that life. And here he is in prison writing this. And he says, I am having a celebration. A celebration of his sufferings, which are of your benefit. Well, why is he saying that? You will understand as well, remembering that Paul also wrote the book of Philippians during this time, where he continues to talk about rejoicing. The reason why Paul the apostle would talk about rejoicing is because he is understanding that he is sharing in the fellowship and the afflictions of Jesus. He's sharing in them. Some of you might have seen uh, Lord of the Rings before. Who hasn't seen Lord of the Rings? Because you think it's weird, be honest. Okay, one person. So, okay, so one person was only telling the truth. Don't lie in church, y'all. 
Don't lie in church. It's weird, yo. Like, it's weird. I, I, and, I, and I love the Lord of the Rings. I love it. But it, it is weird. Some of these stories are weird. All right? Now, why do I bring up Lord of the Rings? Well, because you see the mission to go throw the ring. Oh, gosh, see someone who's laughing. Into Mordor. They have a fellowship of people. All of the people that represent the different, what we would probably call ethnicities, right? You got elves, you've got dwarves, and you got humans. You've got these group of people, hobbits, all together as a fellowship, together. And it's in that same vein that Tolkien really does tap into about the understanding that as all humanity, we are in fellowship. But Paul is talking about being in the fellowship of suffering. For when it's understood for you to trust in Christ, for you to trust in Jesus as Messiah, as the king, the sovereign king over all of the cosmos, that you are now by the God, the Holy Spirit, come in, in dwelling in you, in dwelling in us, that we are now one in Christ. That now what is true of Christ is now true of me. That in Christ, I have fellowship with God. And this is one of the beautiful mysteries of God. That to be joined with Jesus, to be joined with God at the same time by his spirit means to be simultaneously joined to one another. That it is why it's okay to cry and to be angry and upset when another image bearer is harmed. When people in your family, your family of God, are going through something, we suffer with one another. We are to bear one another's burdens as if they are our own. So when we see things happening in the world, it's not just, well, that, that kind of sucks. We are to feel the weight of that. But we are not to get destroyed by that weight. But we are to properly put it where it needs to be. And Paul says he is celebrating. He considers it a blessing. As he is celebrating, think of it this way. His celebration is so sure he is actually celebrating that he is suffering because he is so sure that the resurrection of Jesus has happened. Friends, it is hard to celebrate in difficult and hard times when you don't have hope. Without the trust and the trueness of Jesus in the resurrection, we have nothing to hope in. Now, as I was having a conversation earlier with my sister about justice, and we're going to see some of this here because that's at the heart and the aim of what Paul would consider his gospel message of his commission. That the world has a different definition of justice. And there is no end to fighting injustice. There's no end to it apart from the hope of Jesus. If Jesus Christ has not resurrected, then we have no hope. Because who is there to fix all things? 
So what are you saying, Javon? Are you saying that we shouldn't work for justice because we can't ultimately fix it? No, that's not what I'm saying. When we think about the commission, the supreme commission, co-mission, we are on mission with God. We are together with God. And as Paul would say, that he is celebrating and he is celebrating his sufferings, which are also for your benefit. He is telling this young church plant that in my suffering, it's to your benefit that I suffer. Friends, sometimes we are so selfish and so myopic in thinking about ourselves that we don't realize that sometimes our suffering is not just for us. It's actually for the benefit of someone else. That sounds kind of weird, huh? You see, but if we are joined together, if we are in fellowship together, we are understanding, like Paul, that sometimes we are suffering so that others may be encouraged. And Paul is saying that this is your benefit. He says that I am steadily completing in my own flesh, in verse 24, what is lacking in the king's affliction on behalf of his body, which is the church. What does this mean? Does this mean like Paul saying he's completing in his own flesh? In some of your translations, it'll say what is lacking in the king's affliction. What Paul is not saying is that I am being in suffering and being harmed in order to atone or to forgive sins of all of the people in the church. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that I am here to atone for your sins of what it's lacking. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying, he is fulfilling the truth and the reality that when Jesus says to be a disciple means to pick up your cross and to die. That you would suffer for Jesus in his name. He is saying he is fulfilling the call that he has. Friends, that call is for all of us. That friend is, that is for all of us. I read one of my uh, acquaintances, they posted on Facebook about how they heard their child crying. So they went into the room and asked the child what was going on. And the child responded and said, I'm just thinking about what happens if God wants me to do something with my life, that is not what I want to do with my life. And could you imagine this? This child is 11, and they're distraught about, well, what if God asked me to do something that I don't want to do? A couple things on that. God gave you all the gifts that he gave you for his glory and for your joy to bring about his peace, justice, and shalom. We all have the same call. We all have the same co-mission to partner with God in his work. Now, some of us, it may look different. As the book of Ephesians talks about that God gave gifts to the church, some apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. Some of you guys are dope teachers. 
Some of you guys are people who want to fight for justice and fight against injustice. Some of you guys are natural leaders. That God has given a gift to all of us for the building up and the edification of his church, not to exist just for ourselves, but to be for the world, to be for our neighbors, to be for that one family member that you just can't stand. Because guess what? They probably just can't stand you. But had it not been for the grace of God, you see, God's heart and call for us is to be people in his story, not the main character in the lead of our own story. You see, in the West, in Western Christianity, we've had a history of a lot of individualism to where we lack responsibility even for people who represent us in their sins. We are called to be together, the fellowship. It's like saying, oh, if you're part of this family, there's this donation of a billion dollars, and you're like, yes, I'm part of that family. Or if then somebody says, oh, by the way, uh, if you're part of this family, we take all your money, and then you're like, no, I don't, I'm not part of that family. You got the wrong one, right? We don't want to associate ourselves with those types of things, but the reality is, is that we all share in the fellowship of suffering. If you are called to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, like Paul would say, you are to fulfill the truth of the gospel message. That is to deny yourself, to pick up your cross and follow him. And for following him, we think that someone disagreeing with us is like the death on the cross. You're, you're, there's, they're just disagreeing with me. And all of a sudden, you're devastated. Friends, there is a lot worse ways to suffer. And some of us may suffer in types of physical ways or in emotional ways. You see, but as the scriptures would call Jesus as the master physician, that the true hope of his glory would be the medicine to remind us that in a broken world, he is putting things right. And Paul would say that he is doing this on behalf of his body, God's body, the body of God. Jesus, again, as we saw before earlier, that Jesus is the head of the church, which is the church. I want you to know now that every single one of you has a call. You have a commission. Your gifts ultimately should remind you of this, that you are a gift. You individually are a gift that join together are a blessing that make up God's holy temple, that you yourselves are a gift to the church. As the church, you are a gift. And so we don't just exist for ourselves. And Paul would say, let it be done so on behalf of the body of Christ. In this next season, in this life of this church, you won't see me, but I want this to be a resounding echo. 
What will God and what is God calling you to in the life of this church and in your communities? What is he calling you to, to join with him in his mission? Because it's not just to keep the pew warm, fam. It's to be part of the body. Part of the body. To give yourself on behalf of the body. The body of God, Jesus, his church. Paul would say in verse 25, I became the church's servant according to the terms laid down by God, who gave me my commission on your behalf. The commission to fulfill God's word. We have a mission. And our mission is to proclaim the gospel. To make disciples. You see, here's the beautiful thing. Not only do we have a commission, as Paul would say, but we also have a great commandment. What is the great commandment? The great commandment, as the people will always try to, uh, you know, hem up Jesus. If you don't know what hem up means, that means trick him. They always try to trick Jesus. They always try to ask him questions. And they tried to be faulty. And then the Pharisees, it says this in Matthew chapter 22, verses uh, 34 through uh, 40. They, he says this, when the prophet, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees. They came together, and one of them, an expert in the law. Uh oh, watch out, y'all. The lawyer of lawyers. The lawyer of lawyers, an expert in the law, a beast in the Torah, asked a question to test him Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? And Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all your, mind, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. So as we are going, proclaiming the gospel story of Jesus, the king and his kingdom, we are too to also love the Lord God with all our mind, our soul, and our strength. And to love our neighbor as ourselves. The great commandment with the great commission. They go together. Paul has this work. And remember that this commission is to fulfill God's word. To proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of the kingdom. In verse 26, this word declares that the mystery was kept secret in past ages and generations, but now has been revealed to God's holy people. As Amy was speaking earlier about how the disciples were like, oh, snap. Jesus kept telling them like repeatedly, like we can read it and be like, man, what's wrong with these dudes? They didn't even listen. He kept saying it. He kept saying it. He kept saying it. But even deeper, the whole pattern of the the, of how the, Isra the nation of Israel was uh, oriented towards was knowing that God was their God, that Yahweh was their God, and that he would liberate them. 
that he would send someone, that, or as Isaiah would say, is the, the suffering servant. They could not wrap their heads around about how God, the creator of all cosmos, the one who created a people for himself, the one who created all creation, the one who uh, liberated the nation of Israel from Egypt in the tyranny of the Pharaoh, this same God would come and die. And that's how he would become king. To resurrect, to establish his kingdom. They were a little fuzzy on how could God die. And this mystery was given to the people of Israel, the truth of God, that God would make Israel his people. But what yet was not understood was how this would happen and that the Gentiles would be added or engrafted into the people of God. So if you are not Jewish today and you call yourself a Gentile and you're a follower of Jesus or Yeshua, that's his government name, that if you are in him as a Gentile, this is the revealing of God. Because this ties into what Paul would say here in verse 26, to be revealed to God's holy people. And then 27 at the end where he said, living within you as the hope of glory. That the whole aim in God was to fill the whole earth with his glory. And now glory dwells in us. You see, but this glory is not just glory like, oh, this beautiful, uh, nice stuff everywhere. He means the beauty, the majesty of God in all of creation and all people restored to the glory that he means for it to be restored in. I was driving down the street this morning on my way here, and I was just looking at all the brokenness. I was looking at all the graffiti. I was looking at all of the people who are in need of, of help, who are in need of grace, as we all are. And I thought to myself, God, would your kingdom come? Would your kingdom come? Would you use us? Would you use me? Would you use your church to be an appetizer of the full dinner menu of your kingdom? Friends, we are to be appetizers. We are a foretaste of God's glory. Paul was not mistaken. He understood and said that God's intention was to make known just how rich the glory of this mystery contains. The mystery of the gospel that God would join people together that don't go together. If you've ever played with Legos and you try to put things together and they just don't fit, or a puzzle, you realize, man, this puzzle don't fit. And part of the reason why Paul is writing a lot of these letters is because all of a sudden you got people from different backgrounds um, who come from different philosophies, uh, different families, different experiences, ethnicities, jobs, uh, different classes. And all of a sudden they're together worshiping Jesus as the Messiah. 
y'all gonna have some problems when everybody is like that. And Paul is saying to them, this is not, this is not unbeknownst to God. This is not a surprise. This is what it looks like for the glory of the Lord to fill the earth. Jew, Gentile, people of all nation, tribe, and tongue, worshiping the lamb who was slain. And Paul would say this, and this is the key. The king living within you is the hope of glory. Friends, doing justice and doing just things disconnected from the true reality of the glory of God will leave you without hope. It will leave you without hope. Because Jesus has resurrected, we have hope. As I said earlier last week, because Jesus is not dead, because Jesus is alive, so is hope. So is the opportunity to remember that though you may Walk outside these doors or you may look next to you or even look of them in the mirror and see the brokenness that this is not the final destination. That this is not how things will end. Paul would say he is the one we are proclaiming. And he says that as he is proclaiming, I want you to remember this. It says we he is the one that we are proclaiming. We are all called to proclaim the gospel. Just because I got a microphone doesn't mean I have a greater commission or a greater call. We are all called. We are all called to share the gospel. We are proclaiming. And why, he says in verse 28, to instruct everybody and teaching everybody in every kind of wisdom so that we can present everyone grown up complete in the king. So part of the gospel is for us to be instructed and for us to learn the true wisdom found in God and is to present everyone grown up and complete. I got two beautiful little girls, Ryan and Sophia. And as you think about the conversations that you have with your children, they are fascinating conversations. I don't expect my children to get into a car and drive because their feet are not long enough yet. And they don't yet know how to drive. They're not yet mature in that sense to get behind the wheel of the car. So would I be angry or upset with them because they couldn't drive at their age? No. Why do I use this illustration? Because, friends, some of us have this expectation of your brothers and sisters in Christ to have grown up so fast, but they're still growing. You are still growing. I am still growing. You see, but we are growing together. And the only way to grow together is through the gospel of grace and unity together. To remember that we're in it together. We like to think sometimes that once we either said a prayer or committed ourselves to Jesus, 
that that was the definitive moment that you were now, you know all things, and you are mature in Christ. Guess what? It's not true. And remember, Paul, Pharisee of Pharisees, he knew a lot about the scriptures, but missed the one who the scriptures were about. And we can be so much about the scriptures, we can be so much about coming and attending that we forget the message that we are growing together as a family, the family of God, to present everybody grown up and complete. And I want you to know, you can't do discipleship from a distance. It's done in proximity. It's done together. You are called as part of the member and a tender of this church and in the body of God to help present everybody grown up and complete by following the instruction of the teaching of the gospel and by teaching everybody in all wisdom, teaching them to present them complete to the king. And Paul would say, this is why I am, this is what I'm working for. He says this word struggling. He's struggling with all his energy that is powerfully working in him. Did you know that the energy that is in you as a follower of Jesus, as Paul would say, it's, it's not I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. It is the Spirit of God giving us, empowering us, giving us inner energy, and is at powerfully at work within you. God is not like a construction worker who starts a job and then dips on the project. Or he's not like a construction worker who builds part of the floor and then leaves a couple floorboards out so you can fall uh, into the basement. God doesn't do that. What God started, he finishes. He says that he is faithful to complete it. He will complete the work because he cannot deny himself. Even when we're faithless. He remains faithful. He started a work in you. And he will continue to build you. And continue to love you and mature you and grow you into the image and conform you to the image of his son. Anything built outside of the strength and the energy of God will perish. Anything that you build on your own strength, you have to maintain it on your own strength. You see, but the church is not made by human hands. It's built up by God through his spirit. And one of the things that I want to point out to us is as Paul is working and laboring to see this church grow in the knowledge and the wisdom of God, there is a correction that we need to remember, not of Paul, not a correction of Paul, but a correction in what we experience in, in the West. In, in our Western uh, context, we when we keep talking about the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom, a lot of times we, we understand that we are commissioned and we're called to preach the gospel. But we're also, being in, uh, we're also mistaking that the gospel in proclamation also has a demonstration of the gospel. 
What do I mean by that? We are to be demonstrating, or the Bible uses metaphors as light or salt. We are to be demonstrating what is true and what we are proclaiming. This is why in Matthew 6, 1, where Jesus has the words where he says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward in heaven. So when Paul is talking about teaching everybody and instructing everybody, we have to get the gospel message right. That the gospel is not just this one time saying of, do you believe that Jesus died in your place for your sins? Is, is that part of the gospel? Yes, that is part of the gospel. But it is not the fullness in the picture that the God of the universe will come to restore and reshape all of creation and reconcile all things back to himself, you in him, and now calling you to partner with him for the flourishing of your neighbor and all creation. That is the story. That is the bigness of the gospel. The reason why I bring this up is because if we are talking about working and struggling with God's energy to proclaim and preach the gospel, but we don't have the truth of the gospel correct and we only have part of it, we will create malnourished disciples. People who do not know fully the word of God. This word righteous is interesting. In our translations, one of the issues with the West is that righteousness can also be translated because in our language, we have a different, we have a lot of different words that we can put into this translation, that this word righteousness can also be translated as justice. Isn't that crazy? The reason why is because righteousness and justice are two sides of the same coin. For example, if you were to look at a Spanish Bible, the word righteousness here, if you looked in Matthew uh, chapter 6, it would say uh, that be careful not to practice your justicia, your justice. Because God is righteous. Because God is righteous, he is also just. Because God is righteous, to let Jesus' murder go would be unjust or against his character. The vindication of Jesus through the resurrection is a resounding not guilty verdict. The aim of God in all creation is to apply God's justice to creation and their suffering from injustice and the bondage of sin and its effects to bring his kingdom and rule as king. If we don't remember that, we will think that coming to Jesus and trusting in Jesus means that you're just waiting to get out of here. That earth is just my home and I'm passing through. I'm just passing through. I got my lawn chair. I'm waiting for Jesus to return. Something happens in your neighborhood, in your community, where they're suffering. Yeah, that's terrible. Unjust policies and politics come out. Well, it's because they're right or because they're left. Not my problem. That's absolutely wrong. 
Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the gospel of the kingdom, it comes to bear on the ethical imperatives, meaning not implications, meaning it doesn't just imply, it commands us. The gospel commands us to follow in the reality that Jesus Christ is the king and his kingdom is here. In the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus brings about new creation. And oftentimes, it's easy to talk and it's also easy to preach about the resurrection of Yeshua as more of a a holiday. We do it during um, Easter where we celebrate the resurrection, the resurrection, the resurrection, but yet we don't live every day as if the resurrection was true and that Jesus, the hope of glory, is putting wrong things right. When you only look at it as an event or one one particular uh, day, you lose the reality that it's a cosmic event and story that has massive implications and imperatives on our life today. N.T. Wright would say this in his book, Simply Good News. He says this, but how does the good news of the death and the resurrection of Jesus and the good news that this was for our sins and according to the scripture turn out to be good news to new creation? How are these things joined together? The answer is simple and revolutionary. God wants to put humans right to put the world right. And the good news is this too, that it has been accomplished through Jesus. He goes on to say this, we imagine the problem to be that we are out of touch with God because we needed to reestablish a relationship with him. Well, that is all true, but it's not the whole truth. We forget humans, so to speak, were there for in the first place. God made humans so that we could look after his world through his particular creature. His intention was to bring his creation forward from its beginnings to be a glorious place where he intended to do so through his human family, end quote. We are called to be divine gardeners in the garden of this earth. And somewhere throughout history in the West, the proclamation of the gospel and the demonstration of the gospel got divorced. And I think it has a lot to do historically with the impact of the Reformation and a lot of other theologians. Why do I say that? This is a quote from um, uh, Protestant reformer Martin Luther. If you remember, Martin Luther was a reformer in his day. He was having an issue as a monk because at that time the Catholic Church was essentially pimping people, um, saying that they could give money and pay penance to get people um, out of, you know, out of purgatory, so that they could go to heaven. And at the same time, they would also talk about all this different stuff that you had to do in order to be in. Uh, be in heaven or, or, or go to heaven and to be in relationship with God. And Martin Luther, at the same time, he also, he also had an issue with what did it look like for him to be a person who was loved by God? He really struggled with that. So if you understand the historical context, Martin Luther has this quote when he calls the book of James the epistle of straw. If you know anything about the book of James, the book of James talks a lot about doing stuff, right? But a lot of people will try to import 
their issues, and Martin Luther, I do believe, he had some issues with the doing of the good works. So he felt like that doing of the good works was an going against the gospel of grace, that it's not about your performance, but it's about God's performance for you. This is what he says. He says, in a word, St. John's gospel in his first epistle, St. Paul's first epistle, Romans, Galatians, and Ephesians, and St. Peter's first epistle are books that show you Christ and teach you all that is necessary for and salvatory, salvatory means for salvation, for you to know. Even if you never see or hear any other book or doctrine, therefore, St. James's epistle is really an epistle of straw compared to these others for it because it has nothing to do of the nature of the gospel about it. He wrote that in Word and Sacrament. You tracking with me? You see, if you don't believe that the nature of the gospel has anything to do with doing justice, you miss out, you're missing out on your identity of a follower of Jesus as being righteous, and you're also missing out on being part of the story of God and the redemption and the re- renewal of all things. You see, when we come to understand the scripture that Jesus comes to liberate us. Jesus did not only come to liberate us from the bondage of sin spiritually, but it's also the undoing of sin's effect horizontally, like systemic injustices, mass incarceration, inequity of certain ethnicities, and unjust laws. Jesus is is heaven's first liberation theologian. Jesus talks about his job, his job resume, You can find that in Isaiah chapter 61, and you can also find it in Luke 4, 16, where Jesus talks about, this is my work, to proclaim liberty to the captives. Jesus clearly explains to them that the work that he was to do, and that we are to partner with him in, is understanding the reconciliation of all things. Well, what does this mean? It means that the scriptures are very clear of what Jesus, the Son of God, claimed to do. And as we are here in Colossians, we see how we speak of Jesus as the the culmination and the reconciliation of all things in Colossians 1.20, that Jesus does all the reconciling of all things through his work on the cross and in his resurrection. Jesus' work on the cross was the liberation of all creation, and God through the resurrection, starts to restore all creation by his spirit. And his spirit indwells us, family. We are to think about as gardeners. They have certain tools, right? I'm a terrible gardener. My wife will tell you. But gardeners have certain tools to bring about beauty in the garden. When your grass needs to be cut, what do you use? Would you use scissors or a lawnmower? A lawnmower. You see, we all have the tools. We all have the tools. You will need to ask yourself, to be a divine gardener, which tool has God given you to bring about shalom in God's creation? So when you're walking around in your neighborhood and you're seeing something that's messed up, what tool do you have to shear those edges? 
What's the gifting that God has given you to help make that ugly mound of dirt into a beautiful flower bed so that someone else can flourish, so that your neighborhood can flourish, so that your city can flourish? Jesus comes to liberate us from sin and at the same time reconcile to us to one another and then bring us with his mission. The, theo- the theology of Jesus and him reconciling all things was all inclusive. It's comprehensive and it's restorative. It's restorative again. Now remember this, as opposed to seeking to get off of earth into a place, God is saying that heaven is coming down and that all of the creation, the earth, will be restored. Therefore, today, friends, we labor as divine gardeners to steward God's creation, dispensing justice and equity in the spaces that are void of God's shalom, his peace, to bring his followers, again, like Paul would say, to present people mature and complete in the king. That means we're going to have to engage in civil spaces from politics. We're also going to have to be people who use our other gifts of science and technology to innovate things for the flourishing of people. Friends, because of the resurrection and God calling you to his mission, there is not one thing that you can't do that would be part of God's work to restore all creation to himself. That is the beauty of this. We all got gardening to do. All work is important for every believer. There is no space that is broken or wounded that is outside of the scope of God's rule and his reign. That God calls us to be divine gardeners and stewards and ministers of reconciliation. Not just through the gospel proclamation, but the restorative justice and demonstration horizontally. Commentator Ignacio Elucaria says this, always remember that there is no conversion to God if there is no conversion to the oppressed. Sin has oppressed this world. It has oppressed us. And God, in Christ, seeks to liberate us. I want, you, I want to leave you with this. Like Paul, he said he is struggling with all his energy given to him to see and present people mature in Christ, for him to finish the race. So I ask you, are we? Are you? Have you been or are you right now struggling or working with all of the power of God's spirit in you and through you to see his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven? Or are you just passing through? Are you looking at the political sphere and saying, well, I can't get involved in that because God doesn't have any place of that? No. If you get it inverted, you'll make mistakes. And what I mean by that is this. When you worship your politics, when you worship your political identity, you ultimately seek to worship that as opposed to God in the gospel of the kingdom. You see, because to be a citizen of the kingdom of God, to obey the laws of Jesus, the king, the good king, and and in his kingdom, to obey his just laws, sometimes it means that we disobey laws of the land. 
that when the laws of the land don't match up with God's character and his kingdom, we reject those things. And when we reject those things, we do not just reject them to reject them. We seek to refine them and to make them better. So when there are unjust laws and policies that are sought to harm people, if we cannot influence government, which we can, we have a history of doing things like creating orphanages, creating hospitals, doing the things that God has called us to, to take care of the widow and the orphan. Because we understand that Jesus the King and his gospel, this kingdom, is here right now, we are now remembering that our work is for people to see and to get a taste of the kingdom of God. Are you struggling with God's energy? Or are you wasting it for your own kingdom, for your own self? Now, do I mean that struggling with your energy, you know, I love the movie The Da Vinci Code. Now, I know it's absolutely just completely unbiblical. Um, There's nothing like biblically pretty much accurate with The Da Vinci Code. By the way, it's a book, okay? And I'm weird and I like history, so I watch all those things. But you see how there in Dan Brown's book, but there was one character who was a monk who just beats himself. He's like a masochist. Sometimes we read Paul, and we think that he's doing that. So when we see him saying he's struggling, it's not him going out and abusing himself for the sake of the gospel. So this is not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about are you struggling? Are you abusing yourself? That is absolutely not the gospel. But are you laboring? Are you working? Are you focused on doing the work that God has commissioned you to? Not so that you can do or perform your way into God's grace, but because of God's grace, you now can work and struggle and labor on his behalf for his kingdom to come to bear in the hearts and minds of people. I will leave you with this. The good news is that God is making all people and places new in him. And I know I talked about Tolkien, but my favorite person and writer is C.S. Lewis. Um, And a shout out to uh, Pastor Justin, you know, I had never told him. But uh, my second rap name, that's right, I used to rap and had many names. My other rap name was uh, Ransom Nightfall because I had never heard anybody talk about Ransom as a name. And when I met Pastor Justin and he explained to me that my favorite author, C.S. Lewis, had a space trilogy. I was like, what? No way. No way. And C.S. Lewis, why did I tell you that? I don't know. I just really, I like that one. I, I, I don't know why I t- told you that why, how much I loved Ransom. But I really love C.S. Lewis. And reading C.S. Lewis, I see so much of the imagery, and it's kind of like a layup. And if you don't know what a layup is, it's, it's a basketball uh, terminology. A layup is something when you take the ball and you're really close to the hoop and you lay it up. Good job. We're tracking, right? C.S. Lewis has layups when it comes to a lot of his writings. But in the Chronicles of Narnia, one of the things um, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe that has deeply impacted me 
is this, is this quote. When a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. And if you remember Aslan taking the place for one of the sons of Adam, you see the stone table crack. And C.S. Lewis would refer to this picture of the stone table like the commandments. And ultimately, this stone table, the cross of Christ, that Jesus would bear sin or avert sin, and that he would take the traitor's stead, the, the, the person who was the traitor, he would take their place, and death itself would start working backwards. And if you don't know anything about the book, or you can watch the movie if you don't want to read it, uh, the movies are cool too, but you'll see that the queen, the witch, had Narnia frozen. And as you see, as Aslan comes back, he returns the snow, the ice starts to melt, and everything is working backwards. Friends, I want you to know right now that his spirit is making dead things alive. His spirit is making dry bones to live, as Ezekiel would say. His spirit is making hearts of stone that were hardened towards him soften. In the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, I want you to know that the ice is melting. This is the hope of glory. If you are going to remember anything from this series, I want you to remember this, that Jesus is the king, that he has a kingdom, and his story is that you are part of his story. You have been called, you have been commissioned, you have been loved to be the divine appetizers for people to partake of, to see his kingdom come to bear, to see how rich his glory is. I want you to remember this, that because of Jesus, the resurrection, hope is alive, that he is the king and we have work to do. We are not those who labor, and we don't labor like we don't have hope. We labor because Jesus is alive. Today, I remind you, the ice is melting. And Jesus, like in the Chronicles of Narnia, I love it when he just breathes on the statues and they come to life. That same spirit in you, the word of God, the gospel, the announcement, the cosmic story, the demonstration and proclamation is a loud sounding trumpet that it is finished. And Amos 3.8 would say, the lion has roared. It's over. The ice is melting. 
the lion has roared. So because the lion has roared, don't be scared. Don't be scared. He's going to fix it, and he's going to make all things new. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.